Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you are with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We do not have a good martini for you today. We've got a bad and two crazies. So let's start with the bad. And Jim, you have written about this extensively uh, in the morning jolt today. And that is a story that seems to have just cropped up on us. Not too many people were aware of this. And then all of a sudden, hey, we're only uh, less than 48 hours away from a massive uh, railway strike, potentially, that could really uh, do damage to our supply chain and the status of uh, our economy. So uh, the short version of what's happening is is that starting at 12.01 a.m. Friday, uh, there needs to be a deal between freight rail unions and employers, or else there could be a strike or a lockout, depending on uh, exactly what could happen. And as you point out in the jolt today, Jim, it's not just Amtrak, it's not just commuter rail in some of the big city areas, including where we live. Uh, it's also the movement of tons of goods and services, and to the point where some goods and services are not even being transported right now in anticipation of the strike. So uh, how close are we to a strike? How close are we to a deal from what you know? And, and what should we know here? So the short answer is, I've been you know asking people who follow this, and generally, their answer to me as of this recording is eh, not feeling good, not looking good. I think a strike is more likely than not. But they still, you know, there's always a possibility of an 11th hour uh, agreement. I also kind of wonder if like both sides recognize just how bad the consequences would be and kind of, you know, back away from the precipice. I'm going to make one minute uh, I'm not even going to say a correction. I'm just going to say a clarification of what you said there, Greg, because Amtrak employees are not going on strike, but a lot of Amtrak lines run on rail lanes that are owned by these rail companies. And for you know issues of management upkeep, and I, I kind of wonder about solidarity as well, a bunch of Amtrak lines will not be operating on those lines. This means basically all the cross-country routes have already been shut. Uh, basically, you know, in the last day or two, the, the attitude of Amtrak is any train that we can't get to a destination by midnight Thursday, or, or you know, as Thursday is turning into Friday, that's it. Uh, they're not going. So Amtrak has already suspended, as of yesterday, a whole bunch of the cross-country lines. And it sounds like today are a whole bunch of the last ones that are like long routes in California, because they just, you know, you never know when a train might get delayed and not doesn't get to a station. And if it's not at the station by 12, trouble ensues. Um, in addition to that, basically earlier this week, the major freight line said, look, we're not transporting hazardous materials. We're not transporting chlorine for treating water. We're not transporting. We don't want anything that could be potentially dangerous left out there without staff to properly handle them, monitor them, et cetera, et cetera. Another aspect, and that's why I was talking to uh, somebody else who's been covering this, who didn't quite, uh, who seemed to know everything, but did not know this, so a whole bunch of major commuter rails also operate on rail lines that are owned by the freight rail companies. And they basically said, if they're not out doing their work, we're not gonna run them just because it's not the standard operating procedure for safety, et cetera, et cetera, that we're used to doing. So this means Virginia Railway Express, this means for uh, Mark trains in Maryland, this means Metra in, in the uh, Chicago and Metrolink out in LA and Southern California. I should emphasize, your local subway is probably going to be running. Uh, Amtrak's Acela service up in the Northeast Corridor is going to run, going to continue running. 
Um, but it's it's not going to be your, your local subways. It's generally your commuter rail handing out into the suburbs. Those are the ones that operate on train tracks that are owned by these freight rail companies and that they will be suspending their service. But it's not even really obviously the passenger. That, that'll be a, a, an inconvenience and a headache. Um, the real important stuff is all the stuff that gets moved around by freight. And that includes uh, not so much oil because some of that goes through pipelines, but they do have all kinds of, you know, crude oil, natural gas, liquids, refined products, petrochemicals, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can probably expect that if a strike occurs, you will see price gas prices go up. Um, the, you know, one of the things that jumped out at me was coal. Uh, enormous amount of coal goes around by, uh, by rail. That usually goes to electrical plants. Um, it's, you know, we've, we've talked about the strain on the grid before, uh, you could see coal-powered electric plants really having trouble. They don't really have a lot that they keep in reserve, or at least they used to, but they just aren't doing it these days anymore. Um, you know, that's going to be huge. Agricultural exports, you know, a whole bunch of grains got to get to the port to get shipped around there. And oh, by the way, if, for the idea that, ah, this is going to happen, you know, they'll, they'll have an 11th hour deal. This is just posturing. Well, besides how I laid out how certain products are not being shipped, at right shortly after we finished taping, noon on Wednesday, um, two of the biggest freight lines have basically said we're not uh, doing intermodal traffic. Uh, Norfolk Southern, you may have seen those trains going by, and BSNF Railway, both of them are very big. And basically, they said that as of noon, uh, we're not you know shipping any, we're not shipping anything else. It's got to go from rail, ship, aircraft, truck, etc. So it's, this is big and really consequential. And I've, I've reached this point just in the last few hours, Greg, where I feel like, you know, the, the quote from Zoolander, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because this strikes me as a hugely consequential, uh, you know, the far reaching economic effects. And I feel like it's not getting a ton of attention, not compared to like, say, Lindsey Graham and the abortion bill or any of the usual stuff going on. And like, this happens as of, you know, when the clock strikes midnight at Friday. I suppose it's possible if they're close to a deal, maybe the workers go to work on Friday under the expectation that they'll work out those final details within a day or two. The two other big consequences are there are a bunch of train unions in which they do have a tentative agreement, but if they don't have an agreement with these last two, Smart TD and the Brotherhood of uh, Locomotive Engineers and Technicians, I think it's the other one, if they don't get what they want, every train union is going on strike. Um, so that, you know, the ones that they've made agreements for is probably, you know, that only works if they can bring these last ones home. You lay it all out. I mean, this, we, you know, we, you know, our economy has had a whole bunch of challenges the last couple of years, particularly related to the supply chain. And it could just get kicked in the nuts as a Friday. And I don't see anybody reacting like this is a huge deal. If everybody says, ah, you know, Biden just wants to, Biden will swoop in at the last second. Well, the administration is talking about how they're looking at alternatives, moving some more stuff by, uh, by truck. By the way, the truckers are like, we don't have the trucks. Don't, don't look to us. We already have a labor shortage. And then the next thing was the contention of, oh, you know, like, if you really think there's going to be a last second deal, do you talk about how much you're preparing contingencies? I think the Biden administration is nervous. And there's a lot of people who, uh, in conservative world who are like, aha, this is Biden trying to help out his union buddies and all that stuff. I don't think this is part of an elaborate Biden administration plan. Because if there's one thing we know Joe Biden doesn't want to do, it's shut down Amtrak. 
It's true. It's true. What's the sticking point here, Jim? Uh, it, you point out in the jolt today that the Biden administration uh, took the unusual step of uh, terminating board-guided mediation two months early and starting the 90-day countdown to a possible strike, which uh, some expert told Fox Business was unprecedented. So do we know what the issue is here and how far apart they are? Sure. Short version, pay hours, uh, workload, uh, when they have to be on standby, all you know, fairly standard things. Um, and I, I've, I have readers who are kind of connected to this world, and they are you know, more sympathetic than you might think from labor unions, uh, to the, from the, the union's perspective. The idea that basically uh, you're working your hours, but you're expected to be on call 24-7 in case there's more loads than usual, more work than usual, things like that. So it sounds like they've been, their, their argument is that for years they've been asked to do more with less and they've reached the breaking point. Uh, my understanding is that the you know biggest pay raise in history has been put on t- the table. So it's not like the rail companies are being uh, wildly unreasonable here, um, but uh, you know maybe they just don't have enough workers. Maybe the labor shortage is caught up to them. You'd, the thing is you'd really hate to see all of the far-reaching economic devastation, you know, go ahead and and really hurt the country if it is just one of those issues where, all right, you guys got to meet somewhere halfway in the middle. So we'll see how it shakes out. Um, but I am, I, I am, it, it does not sound like a deal is imminent. And I am, uh, I just I have this vision of people showing up at commuter rail stations on Friday, wondering why the trains aren't running. Yeah, it could be. And I'm sure the media will, uh, carry the Biden water on blaming the companies and then defending the unions and uh, putting Republicans on the on the defensive. Listen, they'll it's... figure out some way to say this is <laughs> yes. Republicans fault. But like, you know, I, the other thing I, the other thing I susp- I've been thinking is, is this not getting covered? Because look, it's Joe Biden. It's Mr. Amtrak. Choo choo. I've been working <laughs> on the railroad. You know, like he's known as this train enthusiast. And by the way, this did happen back in, I was at 91, 92 under the first Bush administration. Lasted two days. Congress intervened, said, let's get this over with. Everybody get what they want. Um, I assume everyone figures that will happen. I don't think you'd see a really long rail strike. If it did, the, boy, the consequences are terrible because like farmers got to get their stuff. Like some of that stuff, you know, some of that fruit rots if you don't get it to the, you know, consumers in time. Um, so I think... If it happens, it won't last very long. But even just starting, it will be bad. And as I said, you're already starting to see some of the impact, the you know, um, some of the the consequences of an impending strike. So I just, you know, we're, it, it, we're we're driving closer and closer to the cliff, Greg. And I'm just waiting for somebody to swerve. And so far, no one has swerved. You mentioned train enthusiasts. Uh, where's our illustrious transportation secretary? He's he must be just rolling <laughs> up the sleeves and working around the clock to, to resolve. There have this. been like two times in the last three decades we really needed a department transportation secretary on the job, and nobody's seen him. <laughs> Not one public comment from him that I've seen anyway on this. But we'll see. We'll see. As you said, it has to get resolved quickly, so hopefully it will. All right, on to our. Second uh, bad martini now, and maybe it's the first crazy. Let's call it the first crazy. Evan McMullen. The last time most people paid attention to Evan McMullen, he was the never-Trump alternative to both Trump and Hillary in 2016. Uh, There was a lot of chatter that he could cost Trump the state of Utah. That did not happen. I think he got a few hundred thousand votes nationwide. 
As far as we can tell, he didn't really uh, change the outcome of that election much. But he is now a candidate for Senate in Utah. He's technically an independent, but the Democrats decided not to run anyone and have endorsed him in their hopes of taking down uh, Republican Senator Mike Lee. And the polls in this uh, race, Jim, are disturbingly close. The people in the electorate of Utah, I think, are shifting somewhat here. Lee is taking a lot of heat for his role, you know, trying to uh, question some of the the election results uh, following the 2020 vote. And he was uh, actively involved in uh, some of the Senate debate. And of course, with everything that happened on January 6th, that amplified his questioning of of the results. And so this race is, uh, is quite close, but it's not That's not the crazy part, although it is crazy. The crazy part is how Evan McMullen is just like so many other rabid never-Trump figures who have not only decided that they can never say anything good about Trump, but they've decided that every Republican, every conservative idea that they ever supported in the past has to go. And your colleague Dan McLaughlin uh, today with with a piece about how when Evan McMullen was that independent candidate six years ago running against Trump and Hillary, he claimed to be the only pro-life candidate in the race. Really? Trump said he was, but McMullen says, I'm the only one who is uh, actually going to actively appoint Supreme Court justices to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, Trump actually did that. And now that it's happened, McMullen is horrified, Jim, horrified. And he's uh, promising to make sure that that gets rectified (laughs) if he's elected to the U.S. Senate. So uh, amazingly, once again, the people who insist they're the ones who are truly principled seem to find new ones all the time. So the one point I will note to what you said there, Greg, is that he did, you know, that the 243,000 votes that he got in Utah in in 2016's presidential election, that added up to 21% of the vote. Uh, It was a distant third, but that's pretty respectable. That's H. Ross Perot level. So uh, I wouldn't completely poo-poo that. But what what really has this as our, you know, featured martini, and I think is a um, worth reading, I, I think you should, people should read this if they like Evan McMullen to get a portrait of the real guy. I think people should read this to get a portrait of uh, Evan McMullen. If you hate it, you'll love reading what Dan McLaughlin wrote today. Um, Dan goes into the weeds of, goes back and he checks and went back at his ads and his messaging and his interviews. And the conclusion you come to is that Evan McMullen is the biggest shapeshifter since the T-1000 from Terminator 2. Um, You know, Charlie Crist would say, wow, that guy doesn't have any principles. That's bad. That's, you know, and I kind of, you know, you know, pointing this out, you know, I, I now refer to him to, as Egg McMuffin. So you should probably recognize that uh, I am not a fan of the guy anymore. I, I do think I'm waiting for people. I'm curious to see what the reaction is because Dan McLaughlin also voted for Evan McMullen. And he points out what the argument was from people who saw themselves as conservatives who looked at Donald Trump and said, nope, can't do it. Can't, you know, this guy is not, this guy is not a true conservative. This guy is not, I don't trust him to appoint pro-life justices. By the way, he did give Donald Trump credit where he is due. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is a direct consequence of the judicial appointments that Donald Trump made. But for a whole bunch of folks, Donald Trump was unacceptable. And they turned to McMullen, who was saying, look, I am that old fashioned classic conservative who is adamantly and intractably pro-life always, right? And they, he said that over and over again. Well, now he's running for Senate in Utah in 2022, and he's running as the de facto Democratic candidate. Um, you know, because you mentioned Democrats are not nominating anyone. He's running as an independent, wink, wink, running <laughs> against Mike Lee. Well, <laughs> he's now saying, I don't, uh, I don't see, he doesn't support overturning Roe versus Wade anymore. I do not think it's a way for the country to move forward on this issue, he says. 
Um, asked about a yes or no about a vote on a national abortion ban, McMullen said no during an interview with MSNBC. And your first clear hint of, you know, one of the many clear hints of the, you know, transformation that Evan McMullen has made is that he's doing interviews on MSNBC. Um, this is the exact opposite of everything he was saying in 2016. And Dan McLaughlin wrote, quote, there is a reason why I and so many other 2016 McMullen voters now openly regret choosing him as a vehicle for our protest votes. He has not kept faith with us. He has not acted honorably. He is simply another opportunist who turned his 15 minutes of fame into a gravy train. Now you can say this about a whole bunch of people, Lincoln Project and uh, folks like that. I'm very curious about how people who are more pro-Trump respond to Dan's piece because this is basically Dan, and I, I'll go and say, you know what? Evan McMullen was never a principled guy. He was never a good choice. He was just another grifter. This is, you know, a lot of Trump, Trump folks are entitled to do a touchdown dance. Trump folks are entitled to take a victory lap. I think by the way, you should, you know, if you're on the Trump side, you should welcome Dan McLaughlin coming out and writing this scathing point to this. Um, it, you know, dispels this notion that, uh, you know, that, that you know, Evan McMullen was not who he said he was. And I think that if he does not thrive, um, that is a, you know, that this will be one of the reasons is he's made this complete transformation. And in the end, um, I don't think we need that in politics. I think you should stand for what you stand for. You should not, you know, completely flip everything you believe because you just want to get elected. Um, and I think the idea that, you know, Evan McMullen naturally evolved from the pro-life position to the pro-choice position just happened to shake out that way. It's very interesting how much his, you know, his, he shifted with his donor base. Also, by the way, I understand he still owns roughly $664,000 to his vendors for that 2016 presidential bid. So he should probably get on paying back those people because I thought paying back your debts was another one of those things that Evan McMullen would stand for. Used to, not anymore. They're fine with big spending now. He's, he's the guy on the left. So, uh, yeah, we'll find out. The polls are ridiculously close. I saw one. I think it might have been a heavy Democratic poll showing McMullen actually up. But even the independent ones uh, show it, uh, you know, mid-single digits, which in Utah, at <laughs> a fraud like Evan McMullen, is way too close. So, Utah yeah. voters, I, I know you might be upset with Mike Lee on a couple of things, but he's a vastly superior option to Evan McMullen. Yeah. The two oddities that I'm looking I'm looking at real clear politics there, my first spot where I look for, you know, poll aggregation and such. The most recent poll they have is from mid-July, which is like, you know, it is mid-September. It's after Labor Day. Anybody going to bother asking? And all of them have Lee up by five or six. Not bad, but also not, you know, uh, you know, put him away yet. Um, I've heard from a bunch of folks who are Evan McMullen fans who say, oh, yes, this is the, the huge upset that's brewing. Nobody's paying attention to this. I don't see it yet, but I also don't think this is necessarily a stone cold lock the way the Republicans would like it to be. Yeah, well said. I think that's exactly right. So uh, let's let's not let that one slip away, too. All right. On to our final martini now, our second crazy. And Jim, I don't know if we call this lame Democratic attempts at Jedi mind tricks or just trying to convince us of things that simply aren't so, but uh, the White House is trying anyway. We talked, uh, I think it was on the same day we talked about Biden's horrible speech in Philadelphia about the the, the MAGA Republicans who hate the country. Uh, there was also the clip from earlier in the day 
of uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, talking about how it was actually Democrats who were trying to get schools open as quickly as possible during the pandemic, and it was Republicans who were standing in the way of that. Well, now they're trying the same false approach when it comes to the border. Yesterday at the briefing, uh, she gets a question about how the vice president said on Meet the Press over the weekend that uh, the border is secure, even though uh, we're going to close the fiscal year with two million encounters of illegal immigrants. And once again, uh, KJP says, well, you know whose fault this really is. It's the Republicans. Look, uh, as far as the border, we're taking unprecedented action. Uh, we had to, to fix something that was broken, especially by the the last administration, we've secured record levels, this is what we have been able to do, of funding for the, de the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, remember, many Republicans uh, voted against that. Many of them who would like to invite me to the border have actually voted against that. And so, Jim, basically what this boils down to, as you can probably tell from that clip, is, you know, we wanted to pass this uh, piece of legislation that our base would have loved and the Republicans wouldn't go along with it. And so therefore, they didn't do what we wanted. And so we're going to blame the whole thing on them. Not the fact that Biden rolled back all of Trump's effective border policies, including remain in Mexico, uh, and uh, basically telegraphed to, to anybody that wanted to come that as soon as he was elected president, uh, they weren't going to get kicked out. So there is this trick in politics where, particularly if you're in the legislative branch, where you say, well, I support X bill, but I have some concerns. And the question is, do you let those concerns end up derailing the bill or do you not? Um, now, look, sometimes uh, you can, you know, those those details matter a lot. I remember, you know, some early fight, the first effort to repeal Obamacare uh, in like the first, let's say, six months of the Trump administration, spring twenty. 17. Uh, Republicans are trying to repeal Obamacare and the bill comes out and it's just not what a whole bunch of House conservatives wanted to see. And they still have they have huge doubts, huge problems. I think it's you know, some meeting where you know they bring over a bunch of skeptical House Republicans over to the White House. And Steve Bannon says to them, you guys don't have a choice. You have to vote for this bill. And um, they kind of laughed at him. <laughs> they said, no, no, we don't. <laughs> we, we don't have to vote for this bill. You know, you, you're not the boss of us. If we think this is a lousy bill and it, you know, yeah, it repeals Obamacare, but it doesn't, you know, what, what it puts in its place is still too much government control. No, we're not going to do this. Right? And so there's a question. So what the administration is trying to say is like, well, we wanted to reopen school, but you guys wouldn't go ahead with all of our spending. So we couldn't just, you know, reopen schools. Right? You, you couldn't just agree. We, we, yes, we had an area of agreement on that, but you guys wouldn't go along with our massive spending bill. Therefore, you don't really support reopening the schools. That's not the way this works. That's not reality. The next version is uh, some version of, like, well, we want to secure the border, but we also want to fund all this stuff, too. If you... Uh, don't support our bill, then you don't really believe in securing the border. Nope, nope, it doesn't work that way. This is why we see these giant omnibus bills, which you know arguably should be renamed ominous bills. That when the idea of like, well, we've put all this stuff that you like, the, the funding for widows and orphans in there. What do you oppose widows or orphans? That's why you need the giant pork spending in my district act uh, amendment, you know, to be to go along with it. If you oppose that. Well, then clearly you oppose the widows and orphans bill. It's a rather implausible two-step. And if you buy into that, I think you're kind of like holding a sign that says, you know, say, kick me or just fool me. I am gullible. I will. I am a cheap date. I will swallow anything. 
uh, is kind of the statement from something like that. It is something revealing, though, that I think the you know uh, Karine Jean Pierre and other Democrat uh, Biden administration officials keep rolling out this playbook because they don't have any better arguments to deploy. Wow. Wow. I, you know, I never thought anyone would ever rival Scott McClellan as being the worst press secretary of my professional life, Jim. But uh, he and KJP might go toe to toe. They're both really bad. Uh, I don't even know which one's worse at this point, but they're in a class all by themselves. When Jen Psaki left for the greener pastures of NBC News, um, my colleague Michael Brennan Doherty said she was really good at this and Biden's going to miss her. And, and I remember thinking, like, really? I, I, come on, you know, we're going to circle back. And, you know, all the time she basically had clean up on, five, on aisle six. What the president meant to say, you know, all that kind of, I thought Saki was bad. But now I see why, you know, she looks way, way better compared to Karine Jean-Pierre. And it's just this, you know, note checking, implausible. The economy has never been stronger. I can't keep up with Biden because he's so energetic. Every there are, you know, like, look, it's politics. People are going to lie. But there is like the semi plausible pass might be able to pass the smell test kind of lie. And then there's the you're peeing on my leg and telling me it's raining kind of lie. And we're getting almost that's almost all we get these days under this uh, current administrative team. Wow. Wow. Well said. So let's see what other issues they try to throw that out on. And hopefully the American people uh, are smart enough to see through that because, you know, most of the stuff she's talking about are all in the last two years. Our memories aren't that great, but they're better than that. And we know what happened with schools and we know what's happening with the border. Um, yeah. The, the, I don't know what they think went wrong in the last four years with the border, but uh, it's a heck of a lot worse now. So, Jim, uh, we'll see what they throw at us tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep them coming. They're a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And uh, don't forget about Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, the short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. That question of working harder than ever before to reduce risk is an interesting one because from the basic concept of free markets, there should be built in this idea that nobody wants their company to be responsible for this level of death and destruction. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.